Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to a Friday Fireside Chat. I'm Rita McGrath. You probably knew that. My um, guest this week is Whitney Johnson, author of a best-selling new book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. Uh, and the book is full of dog tags and ears and everything <laughs> with the things I thought were interesting about it. Um, and the book really is a build on Whitney's previous terrific books um, about how to build an A-team, how to disrupt yourself, uh, and, and really takes it now to an organizational and team level, which I think is a great, uh, great next step. So Whitney, welcome. Thank you, Rita. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So for those that don't know you, I think it might be kind of fun to mm. just tell us a little bit about your journey, because your path is mm. not exactly a predictable, well-lined one. <laughs> No, it was not. But that's what's so interesting is that most people's aren't. But let me share you with you my journey. Um, I actually studied music in college. And um, when I graduated from college, my husband was enrolled to get his PhD at Columbia. So your school, um, but we were in upper Manhattan, and he was going to be getting his PhD, and it was going to take at least five years, it turns out it took seven years, someone needed to put food on the table, that person was me. And so I started working. And because I was a music major, I had been a secretary. I didn't have very much confidence. My first job, um, actually I'd been a music major. My first job was as a secretary and I, um, but I discovered that as I sat in my desk and I watched all of the people across from my desk in a bullpen who were all men at the time saying things like throw down your pom-poms and get in the game. And I was a cheerleader in high school. So super offended, not really, but kind of just a little bit, I needed to throw down my pom-poms. And so I started taking business courses at night, accounting, finance, economics, and I had a boss who believed in me, who allowed me to move from being a secretary to an investment banker. And if you know financial services, anybody who's listening, that does not happen. It still doesn't really happen. Moved into investment banking, did that for several years. And then I had a boss who was fired. They basically shoved me into equity research, but that turned out to be a career maker. Well, they shoved me into equity research because they couldn't fire me because I had good reviews and I was pregnant. So they had to find something for me to do. They moved me into equity research, but it was, it really made my career because it allowed me to learn how to pick stocks. It allowed me to learn how to have an opinion um, of what I thought was a buy or a sell. And it was really, and I was really good at it. Um, and I did that for about eight years. And um, toward the end of my career as an equity analyst, a couple of things happened. First is that I discovered that as this was the apex of American Idol, I called in all of my colleagues and I said, what kind of brand are you? Also Tom Peters work. And I discovered that I was more interested in the momentum of my colleagues and people than of stocks. And so that was this initial thing of, I'm actually more interested in people than investing. And I also discovered Clayton Christensen's work at this time. This is 2001, 2002, and discovered that his ideas of disruptive innovation could help me understand what was going on in the emerging markets, that wireless was disrupting wireline. That's why they kept beating my estimates. But as I read his work and I went to my boss and said, hey, I want to do something new. And they said, we like you right where you are. I realized, oh, I can use this framework of disruption for myself. I can disrupt myself. And so I left Wall Street. Eventually I had the good fortune of working with Clayton and co-founding the Disruptive Innovation Fund with him. 
And then that led to us using the S curve for investing another aha insight. It's not just about products and services and groups, how they change, but how people change. So that's my trajectory. I had a real time, real life experience of disrupting myself and learning what growth looks like. What I've discovered Rita and one of the things I love about talking to you is that I really like taking management theories and applying them to people. And oh, by the way, for everybody who's listening, I have quoted Rita in every single book that I have written, beginning with my first book, Dare Dream Do, because her whole idea of discovery-driven planning was so captivating. I discovered you via Clayton, as you know. And so um, I've been a big fan for 12 years. And so it's so fun for me to be now having this conversation. So that's that's a very long-winded response, but that's how I got here. No, I think it's, I, I think it puts your book into context um, and there's so much richness there, but uh, before I go there, just a couple of notes on Clay. So for those that don't know, um, Clayton Christensen's disruption theory was first featured in 1995 in a Harvard Business Review article called something like disruptive technologies catching the wave or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I remember that so clearly is that was not the same year that Discovery Driven Planning was first published in the Harvard Business Review, which was this whole idea of don't plan for the future as though you knew what was going to happen. And Clay and I just really clicked on that. I think it was a, sort of some cosmic coincidence mm. of publishing. And then, of course, his Innovator's uh, Dilemma was published as a book in 1997, um, just a couple of years, I guess. Before and he quoted that. and he quoted you in that book. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. I didn't realize the two of you connected in 1995. He discovered your work and then started quoting you. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Mm -hmm. And he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about the emotions at each of those transition points, because mm -hmm. what I observe, and you you talk about this in your investment banking days of mm -hmm. looking at a company, I think it was pronounced CIA or something. CIA. CA and um, and saying, oh, you know, it's really grown well. Is it really going to continue? What if I make a buy rating and then it tanks? Like I'm going to look stupid. How do you work your way through that to get the confidence to take that kind of stand? Because mm. neutral ratings don't do anything for you, right? I mean, you know, no, you can don't. write a neutral rating, but nobody can do anything with that. No, yeah. So let me let me actually. This is great. I, I love that you're asking me about this story because I haven't gotten to talk about it very much. So here's what happened. I had moved into equity research, the place that I was shoved into. And I am now, I've been building my financial model for months and it's time for me to go public. And um, I had, it was a company called CA. It was live entertainment in Latin America. I built my model and the valuation was reasonable, but the stock had gone up a lot. And so I'm looking at this thinking, if I put a buy on this stock and it goes down my very first stock, I'm going to look really stupid and I could lose my job. So I was very afraid to, to take a stand. And I remember one colleague said to me, his name is Bob Goldman. And I'm very grateful. I didn't put it in the book because he might think it's bad, but I think it's good because he said to me, stop being a shrinking violet really important that he said that to me because I realized, so I'm digressing a little bit, but this was an important coming of age experience for me because I realized that up until that point, I had been a bit of a shrinking violet. I hadn't had an opinion and hadn't been willing to state publicly, this is what I believe. So that was an important developmental piece for me. Then my boss, more gently, Jim Barano says to me, 
Well, Whitney, why wouldn't it keep going up? It's got good momentum. The numbers are good. And so I did stop shrinking. I did put a buy in the stock. It did go up. It's been 20 years, actually 25 years, because it was the year my son was born. And I have thought about that question a lot, which is why wouldn't the stock keep going up? And the deeper question is, can people, do I believe that people can keep going up? Do I believe that people can continue to grow? My definitive answer is yes. I can't say that word. Definitive answer is yes. That growth is un human growth is unbounded and growth is our default setting. And so to answer your question, how do you get over that? Um, we can talk about the S curve because I think that will be helpful. But part of the way that you get over that is you say to yourself, if I am not growing, I'm dying. And so if I'm in this place where it's a don't buy, don't sell, then I am stagnating. And a don't buy, don't sell recommendation, by the way, is not useful to investors, but it's not useful to ourselves either. And so there was this whole metaphorical, existential, metaphysical thing that was happening for me in mm -hmm. that moment. Um, so anyway, that's a starting point. And then we can riff on that if you want. Yeah, well, I think that story just struck out stuck out for me when I when I sort of revisited the book, getting ready for this as as one of those moments where it, it, it's not comfortable. You know, it does. It's not easy. It's not. It requires thought. <laughs> you actually have to say, what could happen if this doesn't go the way that I hope mm -hmm. it will? And I think those moments are really hard. So let's let's indeed talk about S curve. So for those yeah. that aren't familiar, um, it this was a phenomenon that was found in studies of diffusion and adoption decades and decades ago. Um, mm -hmm. And the fascinating question of something is proven to be helpful or yeah. useful or good for you. And yet <laughs> human beings take a while to get around to it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they finally do get around to it, they get around to it with enthusiasm until you know it kind of reaches the point where mm -hmm. it's done as much good as it can and then kind of level off. So maybe speak about how you took that and translate yeah. human development. Yeah, so what I did, Rita, is we were investing now with Clay and his son, Matt, and we were using the diffusion curve, like you said, Rogers, popularized it back in the fifties and sixties. And we were using it to try to figure out how quickly innovations are going to be adopted, which is your area of expertise and, and understanding that, especially with disruption, um, it's growing slow until it's growing fast and trying to plot, you know, when is it going to reach its tipping point? Is it close to reaching the tipping point and try to buy ahead of that? Well, you can now see the pattern that was happening is momentum of people, not stocks. Disruption applies to people, not just products. So it wasn't too big of a leap for me to say, hmm, how does this apply to people? What does this look like for people? And so I thought, all right, I understand that this helps groups change, but couldn't it help us understand how people change, how individuals change? And so I had written an article and I, I um, partnered with a fellow by the name of Juan Carlos Mendes, and he helped me plot this out, the S curve and thinking about it for individuals and, and wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, a digital article of throw yourself a curve, throw yourself an S curve, I think it was, and really exploring this idea of we can use the S curve to understand what our growth looks like, and more specifically to help us trace the emotional arc of growth 
the experience that we're having when we start something new, when we start to get good at it. And then the experience that we have when we're really good at something. And then it explains why we feel like we can't keep doing that thing that we're really good at. And so I started to really play with this idea as a mental model for growth. And as one colleague said, Whitney, you kind of made this vast intuitive leap initially. And I'm like, I get that. But that's part of what the point of this book was, is to say, all right, I have the diffusion curve. I have this theory. I have lots of anecdotal evidence over the last 10 years or qualitative evidence that would suggest that it makes sense. But in this book, I wanted to look at the neuroscience. I wanted to look at the biology to say, is this does this hypothesis hold? And, and thus far it does hold, it traces the emotional arc of growth. And the idea is, is that when you understand what growth looks like, you increase your capacity to grow. I love that. I love that. And it also helps you, I think, kind of have a conversation with yourself about, mm -hmm. you know, what, what happens next. Um, and so you, the book is in three major parts, right? The first being sort of the launch, you know, mm -hmm. and then what you call the sweet spot and then uh, the kind of mastery uh, element. Um, and inside of each of those, you've got the, the, the various stages mm -hmm. that people go through. And one of the things I really like about the book is that you, you write it not just for the person, but also for the mm -hmm. person managing individuals so that they kind of see where they could in influence the right. development trajectory of their companies. And what I think is also so interesting is there's a very interesting nuance about like, how do you compose a team at these various stages? Mm -hmm. And something I had not thought about before rereading re it was, um, mm -hmm. you don't want everybody at launch. <laughs> You know, you don't want everybody at one stage. You really want mm -hmm. to think about human beings at these different stages yeah. along this curve. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, let me, let me back up and then I'll, and then I'll slingshot forward. So, so for everybody who's listening, what's going on in your brain. So I mentioned the neuroscience. Let me explain the neuroscience pieces is that your brain is running this predictive model. And so whenever you start something new, you have this hypothesis of what's it going to take for me to be successful in writing a book, for example, and you're going to make lots and lots of predictions, many of which are going to be inaccurate. And so your dopamine is going to drop. And you're also taking in a lot of new information. You're literally making memories. So it's cognitively very taxing. And so you're exhausted all the time. Um, plus you've got this huge identity shift and who am I, if I'm not who I was. And so that's, so what's happening at the launch point is that there's this place of you, it feels like a slog. You can feel overwhelmed. You can feel discouraged. You can feel impatient. And by the way, I'd love to come back to seeing around corners. Cause I think, remember we had talked about this, the interesting intersection at the launch point. So let's come back to that. Um, so that's the, that's the launch point. Now, one of the values of a person being at the launch point is that they are inexperienced and because they are inexperienced. So you're asking the question about configuring a team along the curve because you're inexperienced, you are not blinded by familiarity. And so the one thing that you can do very well at the launch point, there's a lot of things you don't do well, but the one thing that you can do very well is ask questions like, why do we do it like this? And as a manager, that can be very difficult because you want people just to go do their work, or you don't want to take the time to answer the question, or you feel threatened because why do you do it like this means why do you do it like this? But there's a lot of value in having people on the team who are inexperienced. Um, then in the launch point or sweet spot, what's happening is that you're continuing to run that predictive model 
and your predictions are increasingly accurate. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting lots and lots of dopamine, these emotional upside surprises. And so it feels really exhilarating and your identity is shifting. You're still deliberate, but you're starting to, it's starting to become who you are. You're not new information all the time. And so you're now in this place from a team perspective where you're still asking questions. Why do we do it like this? But you're also increasingly capable of answering questions. So the sweet spot is from a self-determination theory standpoint, you're competent, you're feeling autonomous, you feel related to your team and to the, the purpose of what you're doing. So sweet spotters are very valuable to a team. One of the challenges with sweet spotters is they're making everything work. And so you forget that they're making everything work because you're not worried about them. And so it's very important to acknowledge and appreciate them because then they become flight risks if you don't. Because launch pointers and masteries are sort of your problem child and your sweet spotters are the model child until they're the problem child. But they're valuable because they can ask and answer questions. And the people in mastery, they have figured out the model. They know what to do. They're at the top of the mountain, but they're not getting very much dopamine. They're so a little bit bored and they really need a challenge. And so um, if they don't get a challenge, then they're going to say, I got to do something new or get complacent. But the value that a person in mastery brings is that they are capable of saying they've got the institutional memory. Here's why we do it like this. This is what we tried before. Why don't you try this? They can do S curve loops and bring other people along. Now, you know that you're in mastery and your plateau is about to become a precipice. When you say things like, that's not how we do it here that is a problem. But when you say, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried the other thing? That's the place in mastery you want to bring be. So you've got the dopamines dropping at launch point. It's up a lot in the sweet spot and it's sort of flattish in mastery. But in terms of configuring a team, you want to have a portfolio of curves um, of people who can ask questions, ask and answer questions, answer questions, and a good baseline for you is to think about the standard bell curve distribution. 60% of your people in the sweet spot, 20% launch point, 20% mastery. It's going to shift depending on your industry, depending on where your company itself is in its growth curve. You might want it to be different depending on if you're a brand new company versus a very mature company. Um, a brand new company probably can't have a lot of people at the launch point. You need a lot of experts. A mature company, you can have a lot of people at the launch point because you can do a lot of training, but that's how you can use the S curve to configure a team. Mm, I love, I love that. So let's talk about this, um, going from one S curve to another, because this is one of the more interesting to me, <laughs> really connects to this whole thing I've observed in careers now, you know, you used to have these career ladders, right? And you sort of mm -hmm. went up the rung of the ladder. Um, and now what we're talking about is tours of duty. And if right. you think about it is the tour of duty concept really fits very nicely into the S-curve mm -hmm. because people yeah. get stuck. You know, and as you said, flight risk, right? People get stuck. I'm, I'm working, even as we speak, on a program for uh, diverse and underrepresented talent. And one of my big points to the organizers of this program, which is a great thing, and they're putting a huge amount of effort into it, I said, but you can't just design the program. So you prepare these people, you know, in effect, you're accelerating them up the sweet mm -hmm. spot. And when they're done, like, what are you doing for them? Like, you have to have a place right. for them to go, or they'll right. go their growth somewhere else, right? That's right. Um, anyway, but part of the dilemma right uh, so you're in mastery you're a little bored you're looking for your next thing but in between these two s curves there's this mm -hmm. j curve <laughs> mm -hmm. and i wonder if you could talk about that a little bit 
Um, say more about that first before I comment, because yeah. I'm not well, as familiar with the J curve. So talk yeah, to me so, and, then um, and then I'll respond. Well, if you think about, if you think about a picture of an S curve, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. The top one's kind of going up, but yep. then as you start the next one, there's an investment you have to make. And I see oh. this in business, right? Got so you have to okay. make the investment yep. and build the next. And we have this mental image and I, I, I in, in strategy, I see this all the time, mm -hmm. boards, analysts, you know, we expect companies to be able to just go whoop up the sweet spot of a growth curve and then whoop up the sweet spot of another mm -hmm. growth curve. Mm -hmm. And we sort of forget there's this bit in the middle where you have to be letting go of what had made right. you successful. So you're disengaging from the past, but you're also investing for the future. And very often what happens is your performance in that transition period right. is depressed as a company. And yep. I imagine there's something similar going on as people. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So thank you for, for reminding me of the J curve. So on um, it's the way I'm thinking about it is it's almost like this trapeze artist. And I remember there was a great, some great research that, um, that I think it was Accenture put out probably 15 years ago about this idea of the successful companies are the ones who invest before they need to invest. Basically they jump to a new S curve before they do. Um, so I think in answer to your question, part of it is doing a reframe for people and helping them understand, all right, you've got this talent and you've got a couple of choices. If they are at the top of their S curve and they are truly going to disengage, they're going to leave or they're going to get complacent and their leaving is going to cost you a lot of money. Their complacence and boredom can lead to a toxic culture, both of which have a cost. And so I think if we can put it in a dollars and cents form of like, what's the ROI of investing in this person, then it makes it easier to do it because you can put it in a financial and financial terms of, okay, it'll cost you anywhere 50% to two times a person's salary to replace them. The cost of dealing with the toxic culture is also very huge because when they're bored, they get in trouble. Like when you were in school, people who were bored got into trouble. So what happens if you invest in your people? And if you, if you think about one of the greatest predictors of how long a person's going to stay is, do they perceive that there's growth upside, then, then they're going to stay longer. And so the cost drops. And so the S curve in many respects is a retention tool. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of reframing that, that has to go into this. Another way to look at it. And I think about this is having been an equity analyst and looking at CapEx and PP&E. Um, this is a capital expenditure. So that, that, that interim period is, is CapEx that allows a person to over time get an ROI. So let me tell you a quick story that I think illustrates this is one of the stories in the book, Marco Tricocci, he's the CIO at Four Seasons. And when he first started, his boss did something very unusual, which was Marco's, you know, the CIO, I got to start, I got to hit the ground running. Let me go and roll out my plan. The CIO said, no, I don't want you to do that. I need you to take six months. I need you to listen to people. I need you to figure out where we are. Where are we on the S curve? What does the lay of the land look like? And then after six months, then you can tell me what your plan is. Now think about what he did in that moment. He said to, he gave him permission, which by the way, is incredibly hard. Cause when you're at the launch point, you feel so insecure and so uncomfortable. And so I want to prove that I'm of worthwhile. But when he rolled out that plan that turned out to be game-changing, moving from a legacy system to modernizing their technology, he had spent six months understanding 
everybody's point of view, what S curve they were on, how they saw the world, building relationships so that change management could take place. And so, so to answer your question, how do you manage that J curve? I think a lot of it is communication and reframing and helping people think about and understand the actual cost of their not doing it and, and recognizing that the cost of making that investment and having that period that feels fallow actually will over time um, have a much higher return and not lose them a significant amount of money. So that's how I would frame it. What about you? What would you do? Um, well, I was just going to observe that that it's kind of countercultural, right? To, um, <laughs> do that. I mean, really, you know, we're, we're in this moment in, in professional life anyway, where being busy is seen as like a badge of honor and sort of mm -hmm. sitting at your desk, staring into space, doing some actual thinking is seen as not being productive. You know? mm -hmm. And so to have the courage to say, let's take that time. Um, so to come back to your question in, in, in strategy, in business, yeah. um, I'm actually working on this as a project at the moment, um, which is what, what are the metrics that you use for mm -hmm. innovation and transformation? And they're really different metrics than you use for the core business, where the core business you can kind of think of as sweet spot. It's predictable, mm -hmm. it turns over, it does its right. thing right. at a company level. Um, and I think a huge part of it is being able to tell the story and being able to explain milestones along the way. So a, a classic case would be Adobe, right? When they went from um, selling trade wrap box software to selling software that you didn't buy, you had to rent it mm -hmm. uh, and it's available on the internet. And there was a huge change and some huge number of their customers protested. They, they signed this change.org petition, like, don't do this. We hate this idea. Um, but Adobe realized that that was where the future was and that staying uh -huh. where they were, you know, somebody was going to do it and it might as well be them. Mm -hmm. um, their CFO, who was really one of the architects of this? He he did the per, per, you know proverbial forty days and forty nights on the road, mm -hmm. educating the analysts, educating the investing community, educating people about what this meant, and their market cap went up even as their revenues went down, mm -hmm. which is a remarkable, uh, remarkable yeah. thing because he realized who the stakeholders were. He explained it to them. He showed them the roadmap. Right. So mm -hmm. okay, it's going to be you know it's going to look soft this is for what a while. It's look like yeah, this is what it's going to look like, and they and. They the investing community, the analyst community um, believed him. So I, I think at a corporate level, at a company level, getting your act together, explaining to people what you're doing, mm -hmm. being very transparent about the bad news as well right. I think is right. really important. Um, and that's yeah. the best Yeah, it's interesting. So a couple of thoughts as I'm hearing you say that, having been an equity analyst myself, I, I, I've i been that audience and I completely get it, is you, you need to be able to explain, here's where we are, here's where we're going. I need to be able to trust you going back to the dopamine, right? I don't want negative surprises because you give me negative surprises. I'm going to put a sell on your stock so fast and everybody's going to dump your stock. But if you manage my expectations and then you give me upside surprises, then your stocks are going to go up. Why? Because my dopamine is so happy. And so that ability to, to manage that and the way I would think about it, a, a, a visual way for everybody who's listening and well, I guess watching too, is this idea of whenever you're jumping to a new S curve and you're investing in people, you're also asking them to jump to a new S curve as well, right? I want to do something new. Um, I want to take on a new role. 
you're asking your manager, your current manager to jump to a new S curve. You're asking your former manager to jump to a new S curve because their lives are going to be disrupted because you made a change. And so what I, I had the visual in my mind is how do you pack a parachute for that person? And as you talked about Adobe, what they did is they packed a parachute so that people said, oh, okay, you're asking me to jump to this curve but you're giving me a parachute. It feels safe. I know what you're going to do. There's a predictability here. I'm comfortable with this. So, okay, let's mm -hmm. go. I love, I love the idea of dopamine and the equity analyst. That's great. There's an article there somewhere, Winnie. <laughs> I think there, oh, there is. Okay. I'm going to, I'm making a note right now, Rita. Dopamine, there you go. Taking a note. Okay. I love that. Okay. That's a great theme. Um, and you know, the contrast case, of course, was just a couple of weeks, weeks ago when Mark Zuckerberg gave this like now infamous press conference mm -hmm. about, you know, meta and what they were doing. And, um, and, and I think one of the observers said, with respect to Facebook's investment in the metaverse, which was $10 billion, I mean, some huge, like incomprehensible number that they were mm -hmm. investing in this. But what they didn't do was they didn't say, here's the journey, here's the path, here's the destination. Yes, we're investing, but here's where it's going to pay off. They didn't provide the parachute. Mm -hmm. And the results were 200, mil, 200 billion in market cap flies out the door in an afternoon. I mean, that that, that's historic. Um, and regardless of what, what your opinion is of, of that company, certainly that was a case of not preparing mm -hmm. people you know, mm -hmm. well for what the future would hold. And I think, I think it's an interesting cautionary uh, tale for all of us. Yeah. So one of the things I think that I'd love to get into is, you know, we're in the midst of this great resignation, you know, mm -hmm. people are, mm -hmm. people are, and I think, you know, it's interesting when you were describing the emotions at launch, what was flitting through my mind was, you know, we all, whether we want to or not, got thrust into this um, a couple of years ago. And yep. all those emotions, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what tomorrow holds, I'm frightened, um, yep. I'm insecure, I'm worried about the people around me. I mean, just every one of those emotions, uh, we've all been shoved right. into, no matter how capable we are at work. Um, I mean, I don't know about you. But and, like, and all of us at the same time, which made right. it even more terrifying because we didn't have anybody on the mountaintop doing the S-curve loops, bring us along. We're all at base camp going, what are we about to climb? Right. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. Yeah. And it's interesting when you think about, you'd never compose a team that way, <laughs> right? But never. Sort of nature, nature kind of did that to human beings. Yeah. But yeah. I think one of the things that I was thinking about as I was looking at the book was thoughtful managers, right? Mm -hmm. And you've laid out what thoughtful managers can do yeah. to improve their people, improve their workplace, give people those opportunities, shove people a little if necessary, um, you know, boot, boot them up at the backside of it. Yeah. Um, but clearly there are an awful lot of managers who aren't doing that. Um, and we, I forget the statistics, but it's something like 45% of the workforce is actively disengaged. Yeah. We've got, you know, resignations in the, in the millions, um, people just saying, I'm out of here. This isn't doing it for me anymore. And what I'm kind of intrigued by to connect those two thoughts is we all got shoved into the beginning of, a, of an S-curve, voluntarily or not, uh, mostly not. Um, involuntarily. Involuntarily. Yes. But could that be one of the sources for this great resignation, which is that people were just kind of trundling along on autopilot. And because this event really forced them into this mm. moment of having to ask, you know, what do I need to learn? How do I navigate yep. How do I figure it out? And I'm kind of wondering if that, in, a, in an interesting way, gave people perhaps the courage to say, no, really, actually, I want to branch out in this different direction. I could not agree more. I, I think, as you just said, we, we were all on this S-curve. We got pushed off of an S-curve. 
And whether, you know, stranded on a new S curve, we didn't choose it, but we discovered a lot about ourselves in the process. We discovered that we're more resilient than we thought um, by having to manage all sorts of work and, and home and homeschooling and all these things that we had to do. We realized, oh, I want something different. And I know that I'm capable of getting something different because I just did it. And so as I look at what's happening is when you talk about a resignation, there's an, there's some implication that people are quitting. Mm -hmm. And when I look at, it actually almost makes me emotional because we have not quit the last two years. If anything, we have seen what we are made of. And so, yes, there's some people that are a bit tired and they're moving up this mountain. They do need a respite. And I understand that, but I think that this is not the great resignation. I don't think people are resigning from, I think they are aspiring to, and for me, it is the great aspiration because psychologists have found that when you come through a period of severe stress, like a pandemic, there is often tremendous growth. It's called post-traumatic growth. And that is where people are right now. And I think when an employer understands that and they stop thinking, how do I not lose my people? How do I grow my people? How do I create conditions wherein people can grow? Then they will start to retain them and it will be game-changing. And some of the, some employers I think are doing that, but it's game-changing for any employer that does. Yeah, I think that's true. And, um, I, I do think it, it potentially has the roots to solving what to me is one of the most pernicious plagues of American society anyway, and increasingly, you know, globally is just this massive amount of bad jobs that we've got. I mean, just, just horrible jobs, unpredictable hours, poor pay, um, you know, lack of respect, lack of dignity, people basically being treated like badly performing robots. And uh, yeah. And, and I think what's happening perhaps is we're now learning that that has a cost. And I, my soapbox yeah. would be. Uh, yeah, that, let, let me give you like a really yeah. simple example that I was so happy about. So I live in a town called Lexington, Virginia, and um, which isn't necessarily relevant, but it's a small town. And um, the other day we went into this restaurant called Palms and they said, we're going to have shorter hours. Um, we're going to only be open from this hour to this hour. And they said, basically due to the request of our workers, because their workers, and I talked to the manager and he said, you know, our workers said we're tired and we're burned out and we can't work so many shifts. And they said, okay, we'll change the hours of the restaurant. Hmm. And hmm. I thought that's a great example of just listening to and responding. They don't need to be open at all hours of the day. We, the consumers will manage. And there's then there becomes this give and take mm -hmm. and, and you become, there's this communal aspect to it. And I think that's very powerful. So, so they're saying I, and, and again, they're not resigning. They're just saying, I want a life that feels better to me where I can work and I can put food on the table and I can rest and I can be with my family. That's the request. And that's the outcome. I think it's really positive. I do too. I love great aspiration. That that's that's perfect. I will I will reference that going forward. Um, so one of the things that I'm hopeful for, and you know, and your book maybe offers a bit of a recipe for this, is instead of seeing human beings as purely a cost, 
which mm. I think a lot of people do, is seeing them as a source of revenue growth. And this is an argument that Zainab Tan from MIT makes all the time. She says, you know, if you look at high quality workplaces, um, people are cross-trained, they jump in, they're oriented toward the customer, they take on jobs without being asked to, they, they really are performing very, very well, and it, it has an impact on the top line. And I think too many companies really don't recognize that one of the things about being human is you actually can bring your ingenuity to situations yeah. in new ways. Yeah. And you're not just yeah, I love that. So is, is Zainab doing work on moving the moving um, humans onto the asset side of the balance sheet? Is that what she's doing, or um, or is it something that's, that's probably too too well indirectly indirectly indirectly? Okay. But what, no, what what Zainab's done, which is phenomenal, and I would mm-hmm. recommend anybody listening check it out. Yeah. It's called the Good Jobs Institute. It's mm-hmm. she founded it a few years ago, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because she she went on her own S curve. She took a step mm-hmm. back. So. I'll briefly her story. She yeah, tell us. Good job strategy. Um, yeah. And, you know, and it was part of her academic portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a strict academic at the time. And a lot of people started coming to her and saying, well, you know, what do I do about this? And she said, well, I'm an academic. I'm, I'm not a consultant. Like I, I can lay out the issues for you, but I'm, I'm not the person to find the solution. Yeah. And then somebody said to her, well, if not you, like who's going <laughs> to do that? And so her own S curve was stepping yeah. away from, I mean, she still teaches at MIT. She's still yeah. an academic in the sense of being affiliated with the university, but that's not her main mm-hmm. mission right now. Mm-hmm. It's 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 building this good jobs institute. And what she's laid out is um and we should we should talk to her because this could be really cool. Yeah, um what she's laid out is a, a process by which you can go from being a bad jobs employer. So giving your people you know very starvation wages, un, awful yeah. hours, lack of security, yeah. the whole nine years. It's not no development track, no promotion mm-hmm. from within, you know, just keeping people in a box where there's no growth. Um, two, being an employer where you treat your people differently, but the connection that I think Zainab makes and the mythology that has arisen about her work is, oh, just pay people more and all will be well. Well, that's not, you don't get the benefit just by increasing pay. It has to be connected to operations, organizational systems, how we do things, what the, you know, what the right. uh, output is. And people have to have agency and the chance yeah, to make a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, if you go back to like the industrial revolution, I mean, the way we still think about people is as we're, we're cogs in a machine and what's so fascinating. I actually wrote a piece on this a couple of years ago. So I love how these are intersecting is that as people had, they were asked to be cogs, you know, Henry Ford, et cetera. But as we became cogs, they paid us to do that. But then we had more money to dream and to go buy things that mattered to us. And so what started shifting, and I think that the pandemic has accelerated, is this idea of, I want to bring my dreams to work. And if I, I can go buy my dreams, but if I can't dream at work, then I don't want to, I don't want to work here. And so again, growth, dreams. I love this. It's a good jobs Institute. Very cool. Okay. People are asking questions. So we, should we answer questions? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, which one do, where should we go? Oh, let's, let's talk about uh, parenthood. I think that would be fun. Okay. What's the question? Let's talk about an S curve. Yeah. (laughs) The baby does not come with an owner's manual, you know? (laughs) No, they do not. Okay. I heard you mentioned you have a son. When you look back at your experience, Carrie, when I helped you a lot, made your life better, which is your times. Okay. What would have been, oh, Oh, hmm, that's a great question. I love it. So first of all, I think that if I had understood this model, it would have made a really big difference because I don't know about you, Frank, 
but I have spent many moments feeling incredibly incompetent as a parent. I mean, just bewilderingly incompetent. Like, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm ruining their lives kind of thing. And so I think that if I had had this model, it would have helped me understand you're at the launch point of the S curve. Of course, you don't know what you're doing. You're doing something new. You've never done this before. You have this hypothesis and you've read all these books of what to expect when you're expecting and you think you're an expert, but in fact, you are not. And so it would have allowed me to give myself grace. And I think that um, what's interesting, so so becoming a parent, I think the, the next thing I would say is that it would also help me understand, and this is something that's happening in real time. So we've got a 25-year-old and a 21-year-old, is that when it comes to a relationship, you want to be in the sweet spot in perpetuity. And so you start to recognize that with your children and, and with your partner or your spouse, that you want to figure out what do I need to do? How do I have enough newness and how we connect to each other so that we are always in the sweet spot? Because with my with my family, I don't want to get to mastery. I don't want to have to jump to a new curve. I want to stay in that curve with them. So what does that look like? What do I need to do to be able to stay there? And I think the other thing that I would say that I've thought a lot about is that when I think of growth curves and I think about how growth is our default setting, I will often say to my children, I'm so grateful that I now get to figure out how to parent you as an adult that we're not finished. It's just because you're 21 and 25 doesn't mean we're finished. Like we now get to have a whole nother 20 and 30. And if you are like me, believe after this life, that's a lot of time to learn how to be a parent. And so that to me is thrilling is that I may be very much at the launch point, but it's a growth curve that can continue to grow and that that relationship can continue to develop. But the piece that I think that is most important for me, and I'm digressing a little bit, but I, I want to say this because I think is important is how do I make sure that no matter what I maintain my relationship with my children, what do I need to do to do that? I need to have boundaries. I need to not be permissive, but I do need to focus on the relationship because that is the most important thing. So there you go, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one of the things I think is most unfair about having children is, you know, you do your whole little S curve, right? So you get really good at baby, right? Uh -huh. And they turn into toddler and then they turn into elementary school children. And then they turn into prepubescent nightmares. And then they turn into teenage nightmares. And mm -hmm. then you master the whole college admission process for those right. of us sending kids right. to college. And that's right. like a whole second career. Um, I mean, it's like mm -hmm. a whole second job when you're going yep. through that. And then, yep. and then like all that accumulated wisdom, <laughs> You're never going to use it again. I guess maybe ever again, yeah, <laughs> ever again. And then they want to become adults and semi-independent. And what does that look like? And then I've heard that when they start to have children or they get married and have children, that's a whole new thing too, as well. So it just, it's ongoing, but I guess to, to extrapolate and go back up to the big picture, Frank, it is very helpful in understanding that there are going to be different phases of, you're going to have, as a parent, you're going to have lots and lots of launch points and it allows you to give yourself grace to be in that place. Yeah, I love that. Um, one of the things I think that's interesting about your own journey of discovery, and you gave me a little gift, which comes from that, so just mm -hmm. read up from Whitney, is um, kind of rediscovering nature, 
you know, mm-hmm. in your place where you yeah. live now, and that that yeah. wasn't an easy transition either. It wasn't expected. That's for sure. So we had lived in Manhattan for 10 years, as I said, cause my husband went to Columbia and then we were in Boston for 15 years when I was working with Clayton and, um, a few, five years ago, uh, my husband, uh, was hired to teach at a small liberal arts school, Southern Virginia university in Lexington, Virginia, which is our entire County is 26,000 people. It's very rural. And I mean, my husband still teaches me when we first moved here, I woke up one night and I was like, honey, honey, turn off your phone. Your phone's buzzing. And he looked at me and he was like, those are cows mooing. I mean, it was just so rural. Anyway, what's been really exciting and wonderful and lovely is that my husband grew up on a pick your own berry farm in upper Marlboro, Maryland. And he hated because every summer he would have to pick berries and his parents, you know, he couldn't do things with his friend. He's like, I'm never going to do that ever again. We moved to this house. There's this paddock with blackberries. My husband goes out and starts kind of tinkering before you know it, we're growing blackberries. We're growing raspberries. We're growing strawberries and people come over and they pick them. And then he and my daughter make jam. And it's just this lovely, lovely experience of being around nature, seeing how things grow. You know, I talk about the humans and how we grow, but being able to see plants grow and then seeing them die when they go into, you know, the, the fallow period for the winter, it's, it's been a really lovely experience for our family. And I hope you love the jam, Rita. I haven't opened it because I was waiting for this. So it is on my list. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want it to look all, you know, disgruntled because you did a job of like wrapping it up and yeah. it came yeah. in this lovely box. And my husband's like, what is that? <laughs> you'll, you'll, ha- you'll have to make biscuits. Biscuits. Okay. All right. Yes. The challenge accepted. I'll mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Fernando, <laughs> should we answer Fernando's question? Sure. So Fernando says, I think it's tragic that masters become so disengaged with the domain. It's said that Nobel prize winners are cursed because they get stuck in committees and panels instead of doing great work. Is there an alternative to jumping to S curves? Is it possible to leverage your mastery and that of your peers to transform and reinvent? Yeah, absolutely. Fernando, it's a great question. And I think, um, there are people who are able to get into this mastery place and continue to reinvent. Um, Gary Ridge, from a management perspective, he's been the CEO of WD40 for 40, or not 40, for 20 years, because he's continually finding a way to make it a summit, not the summit. And so what I would say, Fernando, is that once you know, again, once you know that this, this is a model, you have this model, if you've found something that you believe is your life's work, whether it's neuroscience, whether it's rocket scientist, whether it's being a parent, whatever that is, once you know what your life's work is, then you can say to yourself, oh, I'm starting to feel a little bit bored. I'm starting to feel a little bit disengaged. Then you can ask yourself, what do I need to do to re-engage? What do I need to do so that I can keep climbing? What do I need to do so that I can say this is a summit, but not the summit? Do I need to take on a new project? Do I Do I need to, there's one example and kind of extreme in my prior book, build an A team where you had a guy who was a great sales leader, fantastic sales leader, Dan Shapiro at LinkedIn. He wanted to become a CEO. His boss said, Hey, CEOs aren't salespeople. They're product people. And so Dan persuaded, he was leading a thousand person organization. He persuaded them to let him go into product where he had three engineers, no direct reports, no guarantees. But to Fernando's question, this is unusual. 
there were lots of circumstances, weather patterns that made this possible. But as he went into product, yeah, he didn't know product, but he had all this vast storehouse of sales experience that allowed him to make lots of mistakes, but get smart about it really, really fast. And today he's the chief revenue officer. He knows sales, he knows product. So the short answer is sometimes you need to jump to a new curve, but if it's your life's work, then you figure out ways like Rita, you're not going to go become a professor of, um, of, um, let me pick something kind of <laughs> unusual. You're not going to become a professor of music, <laughs> but there are lots of ways that you can make what you're doing now very fresh and stay engaged so that even though you're very much a master, you, I don't think are bored with what you're doing because you're finding ways to continually reinvent. Well, every day is different, right? Um, every day is different. Well, it can be. It can be if you choose for it to be. If you choose for it to, that's right. Mm -hmm. And it does take energy though. I mean, I, yes. think, I think that's something, you know, it, there are times in life when really all you just want to do is come in at nine and leave at five and then, you know, that's mm -hmm. all you can really have end with work. But this brings me to an interesting kind of reflection on careers and something I see a lot of my corporate clients and and people in corporations struggling with, which is um, we have inherited this two notions, which I think are questionable. One is this notion of hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. So we run organizations as though they were armies or factories or something uh, with lots and lots of layers and levels and going up is considered a promotion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and functions. So we specialize activities in functional groups. So marketing, mm -hmm. as you just mentioned, product, sales, blah, 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 blah. blah. Mm -hmm. And increasingly I'm seeing that superstructure start to implode. So if you look at the way fast moving digital companies tend to be run, um, very flat hierarchies, right? Maybe four layers, maybe five, but not more than that. Um, and we're seeing intact teams, which have all the functions represented within them, yeah. right? So you've got engineers and product people and marketing people and mm -hmm. compliance people and, 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 and. Um, and one of the things I think is challenging for people, but where your work really fits beautifully is to kind of connect it to what you were talking about. I mean, I've had the same job title for I don't know, 30 years, <laughs> you know, so in a hierarchical sense, there's been no progress, but that's not my measure for, for progress. And for a lot of people, I think it is their measure for progress. It's, you know, I want to be an E4 level two, you know, category Z or whatever it is, because they've commingled their own personal um, development with, with this hierarchical level. And mm -hmm. I really try to get people to say, well, you know, why do you want to do that? And, and the answer is usually something like, oh, because if I was at that level, I'd have the budget to bring on the wonderful new people and I'd have the ability to you know, do this. They're talking about the, the outcome that they really want, mm -hmm. but they've conflated it with this, you know, this hierarchical thing. Right. And so I wonder if you see people starting to think really differently about what career progress means when it's mm -hmm. unconnected from a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, it's very, very slow, but I think part of what is exciting and probably drawing people to smaller and mid-sized businesses is that it is more possible for that to happen mm -hmm. for people to say, okay, I've got enough money for my needs and my wants. And so now I just want to grow. I just want to develop. And as long as I can get the resources that I need, so that I can grow, so that I can make a dent in the world. Because think about it, Rita, every single person we ever talk to, when you ask them what their why is, it's almost 99.9% .9 of the time, 
is they want to do something good in the world, some permutation of that. And so in smaller companies, that's possible because you haven't gotten calcified in, in the way that you normally would. You've gotten enough money. And then you're saying, we need to go do this. Do you want to do this? Yeah. Let's get you the resources. And then you're off. And that's part of, and that's the whole idea of disruption, right? That's how we're going to change how we structure businesses because the small businesses are going to figure out how to do that. And they're going to start to have people want to work for them because they're going to be able to aspire. You're resigning for organizations that won't let you do that. And you can do that in small organizations. So um, I can give you a quick example. I think it's useful. So Chatbooks is a company in, um, in, in, uh, they do, they turn Instagram photos into photo books and they're a young company, less than hundred million dollars in revenue, but they took this S curve diagnostic and here are three different outcomes, which I think are really useful and valuable. One is woman chief marketing officer realized she was at the top of an S curve. In this particular instance, she did need to go to another company because there wasn't another S curve for her there, but it was amicable because they all knew what was going on. It was just, we need to continue to grow. Now she's an ambassador for this company because of how, how the, 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 the separation worked at the tour of duty is as Chris Ye would describe it. Another person was able to say, Hey, you know what? I'm not able to grow here, but the reason I'm not growing is because you, the CEO are still kind of on my S curve. Like you delegated it to me, but you're still on my S curve. So can you go jump onto your own S curve so that I still have headway on my S curve so that I don't feel like I'm in mastery. So now he feels like he's growing. And so he's got another few years of runway on that current S curve. And then another person who was definitely in mastery said, Hey, I want to stay here. I'm the CTO. I like being here, but I need to keep growing. So they gave, they promoted him to do promoted in the sense of new responsibilities, had another person take on some of what he was doing. He starts doing new stuff. Oh, this feels really uncomfortable. I'm embarrassed. I'm supposed to be the CTO, but then he now had permission to say, launch point, everybody, this is what it looks like. And so it's a small enough organization where that growth can take place. Sometimes you leave, but two out of those three, they just needed to reconfigure things so that the growth could happen. I love That's that. exciting to me. That is. Well, and it connects to something that I've seen in the corporate world. So, you know, if I take um, big corporations, right, yeah. there used to be a lot of trainer jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were being groomed to be a senior leader, you know, you'd spend a little while in a, in a region and then maybe you'd go off to a small country and you could make mistakes. You know, you could move up your S curve right. in places where people didn't really notice at corporate headquarters. And then eventually you'd be groomed and brought back. So Unilever would be the classic example. Yeah. So everybody at Unilever who was being groomed for senior management spend two years in India and two years in Africa and two years in Europe and you'd sort of work your way up um, but those jobs have disappeared uh, so the, the, what I call the trainer jobs have disappeared so what I'm seeing is this fascinating pattern where people will be in a big company they'll jump to a smaller company to get that next bit of learning and then they'll come back to the original big they'll company boomerang. Yeah, so they'll kind of go back and forth. So I don't want to close without talking about what you're doing with your company because it's oh, super yeah. exciting. Okay. You renamed it. Okay. You renamed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it launched on its own S curve. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we, so a couple things. Um, we realized it was you know WhitneyJohnson.com, and that was when I was just focusing on speaking. But in the process of developing all of this intellectual property, the S curve of learning. We developed an assessment that allows you um, as a manager to 
see where everybody on your team is on the S curve and, and not just where you think they are, but where do they think they are? Because where they think they are is going to predict their behavior, not yours. And so you can have your entire team take this assessment and then use this to not only think about talent development, think about succession planning, but also the team configuration that we talked about earlier. And so we have been building out this tool. Thank you, pandemic. Um, and we now then use this inside of organizations and then wrap coaching and consulting and workshops around that. And then we renamed the company disruption advisors because we want to actually build a business and not have it be me and, and Whitney Johnson's ideas. And that usually people think, oh, but I, I want my name. I'm like, no, I think this is a really good thing because then it allows the ideas to be out in the world and, and sort of separate from me. And I think that that's, it's kind of like a child growing up and individuating. I think that's an important process. Yeah, I, I agree. And have done something similar with, with yes. a company that, that you and I are talking about, maybe collaborating with, it's called Valise. Yeah. And uh, so you would, you a company would call you up and say, I wanna figure out what's going on with my people. Mm -hmm. So where I see that um, kind of intersecting with the innovation agenda very mm -hmm. strongly, and we should definitely follow up on this is, yeah. um, you know, who do you put on an innovation team? So I've got this mm -hmm. idea, you know, I, I want to move forward. Well, default number one is who's available. And here's mm -hmm. the problem. There's usually a reason they're available. Um, default number two is who do I know? Mm -hmm. uh, default number three is, you know, go go find a headhunter or somebody to go mm -hmm. staff this up. And I think with your tool, you know, you could be a lot smarter about how you actually source the talent that you need for these teams, because especially with innovation, you definitely need people at mastery. You yes. definitely need a bunch of people in the sweet spot, but you also, you know, you need people who can bring fresh eyes to this, who right. aren't sort of steeped in the existing business model of the mm -hmm. business. So I could see your tool being really helpful mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the configuration of the team. And like you said, when you're innovating, you need to have some people that have that expertise, but, but you need, even if you don't have people who are brand new, um, it helps to have people from outside the industry. I, I know one person that we wrote about in our HBR article, um, Dan Miller at, Ar at Under Armour, he will purposely bring launch pointers. And when he describes launch pointers, they may be expert in an industry, but they're from another discipline. So mm -hmm. that allows that fresh perspective of why do you do it like this? Mm -hmm. And that's where the innovation starts to happen. I love that. I love it. And I think, I just think the power of, of recognizing that being at a launch point doesn't mean you're not accomplished or that mm -hmm. you haven't done great things in your life. It means you're, you're starting something new. And I think that's very powerful because I think we have sort of ingrained in our brains this idea that you know you start off as an apprentice and then you learn a skill and then you become a master and then you're there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. And then right. I think, well, my own research definitely would not be in accord with that. I mean, my own research suggests you're constantly evolving through series yeah. of, these, yeah. of these transient stages. And so I think it's kind of comforting to be able to name it and in your, in your work to now identify it and be able mm -hmm. to say, uh, what people should do. So how do people learn more? Where do they, where do they go to be part of Whitney's world? Yeah. So Disruptive the, advisors world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The yeah. Whitney's world. Uh, it sounds like Wayne's world. Okay. So, um, so the best way is, um, you can buy the book. I think that's an easy entree. I have a podcast. Rita okay. has been on the podcast mm -hmm. and that will allow you to get very familiar with our work and what we do. Um, and then you can sign up for the newsletter at whitneyjohnson.com forward slash newsletter. And, or if you want to reach out to me, wj at whitneyjohnson.com. So lots of different ways to have a conversation. 
Oh, that's great. And I am looking forward to continuing conversations. So um, thank you so much. Thank you for moving moving the date. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Personal thing come up and we couldn't do it when we were originally planning to. Yeah. But this, this is great. And uh, enjoy the increasingly warming weather. And I know. Springtime's here. Yeah. yeah. Thank All you, right. everybody. It was fun. Thanks. Great, great, uh, great questions, everyone.